Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Handwoven, Piecework, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. This episode is sponsored by Trainway Silks. You'll find the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons at trainwaysilks.com. Choose from a rainbow of hand-dyed colors. Love natural? Their array of wild silk and silk blends provide choices beyond white. Trainway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. I'm your host, Longthread Media co-founder, Anne Merrow. Kirsten Neumüller is a textile artist and recently woodworker. Her new book is called Simple Weave. I spoke to her from her home in Sweden. So Kirsten, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. This is delightful. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about right off the bat is that you have a brand new book called Simple Weave. And, you know, when I was looking through the book, there are a lot of things that are simple, sort of up and down to shed. But you actually have some that are fairly, you know, advanced, like what I think of as being advanced, such as rep weave and and other kinds of patterning. So can you tell me what simple weave means to you? Like, what is it that characterizes something that's simple? Mm, Yeah, um, great question. I love that, that you like question <laughs> the title <laughs> of the book. Uh, to me, Simple Weave is about weaving being accessible, both in like a physical way. Like I want craft, when you're a beginner, I want craft to be accessible as in that you don't need like to get an extra room for your loom, for example, or you don't need to invest in a floor loom that can be super expensive. And then you don't know if you're going to like the craft or not. So I want craft to be fairly cheap and easy to come by. Uh, also, I mean, simple weave as in like, this doesn't look simple. No, um, I, I can agree with that. But that also depends on what level you're starting out on. So the book starts out on a really basic level for those who are coming into weaving with no previous experience at all. It starts out with like, what is a warp? What is a weft? How does weaving work? And then it brings you through. So it gets gradually more complicated, but it really takes you through all the workings of of the weaving so if you were to open the book in the back and just like oh this looks really hard (laughs) i mean if you start reading it from the beginning and then you Mm -hmm. go through the book when you end up in the in the tougher projects in the back my my intention is that they won't feel as complicated as when you're just looking at them with fresh eyes and you never wove before but it's also really important to me when i write books that I don't write only for beginners because for myself, I mean, I want to write for beginners. I also want to write for myself and my peers who are fairly advanced in different textile techniques. So I don't want to write just introductory books. I want to write books that have both introductions, but also like high value for people who are already in into weaving in this case. Well, one of the things that I noticed is that even some of the earliest projects, there's a beauty in the simplicity, the, the aesthetic simplicity. You tend to work with either, you know, natural colors and just blue, for example. So having a really cohesive but simple look to it means that no matter what level you're at, it's really appealing. Thank you. That's, that's why I aim for 
one of the things that I notice is that, and I have to confess, I'm cheating a little bit because I do follow you on Instagram. You know, I tend to think of rigid heddle weaving as, you know, a plastic heddle and something like a, an Ashford Knitter's Loom or a Shacked Cricket or a, a Kromsky Harp, something that's sort of a wooden frame where you move the shed and it fits in sort of a slot. But the heddles you use are much simpler than that. Mm. And you actually create them yourself. Mm. Yeah. How did you come to make the tools yourself? Well, I started out, uh, so I, I have a lot of experience in textile uh, working. So I, I've studied it for many years and, in, in, you know, studied sewing clothes for many years. So I have like a pretty broad range of skills when it comes to textile craft. But I have, I had basically none when I started out working with wood. And that was in the spring of 2020. I was uh, hiding from COVID in the countryside on my family's farm. And uh, there happened to be a juniper bush that fell in the spring storm. And my father chopped it up for firewood. And uh, I was bringing in some firewood and I started, you know, smelling one of these pieces of firewood. And juniper, it smells so nice. And I... I'm I'm deeply rooted in like traditional crafts. So I was like, oh, this is a great traditional craft material. I should be able to make something from this. <laughs> um, and actually, uh, I turned out later, juniper isn't that great for making stuff from because mm. it's quite brittle. But but I didn't know that at that time. So I started whittling away. I had a carving knife there and I just started sort of carving little sticks to keep in the middle of uh, yarn balls you know when you make a ball of yarn and you have super thin yarn you just Mm -hmm. get like a hard lump in the middle that's Mm -hmm. kind of gnarly and it's hard to unroll once you get there so i i prefer to have something like a coin or a stick uh, at the very center um so i started making just sticks for myself and one of the sticks became a bit bigger than the other ones and I was like, huh, mm-hmm, what can I do with this? And and I remembered because my grandmother and grandfather, they were crafters. Mm-hmm. So I know that my grandfather made heddles. Mm-hmm. And I remembered I have his heddles. Um, wow. And so I was kind of, you know, I had the the idea that you can make a heddle was already in my mind. So I I went and got myself the drill and I drilled three gnarly holes and I, <laughs> I carved two slits in this little wood chip. And, and that that's what got me started, really. And I was just so infatuated by the idea that as a textile work, as a textile craftsperson, I'm actually able to make my own tools. Like I, I felt so competent in mm-hmm. the textile field, but I felt like that's where it ended. That's where my craft competence really like ended. And when I traversed that divide between like the wood and the textile, that was a huge step for me. And they're so beautiful. Not only are they slits in the holes, but you often have, I think there's a pomegranate motif and a horse motif and what look like little house motifs. So it seems like this is its own form of expression for you now. Oh yeah, oh yeah, for, for real. Um, when or for sure. <laughs> um, sorry, English isn't my first language. When I started carving, I I had another full time job, and and mm-hmm. I, I had I was a store owner. I had a clothing store, so you know, not only did I have a job, I had my own business, so I was working more than full time. And so the heddle carving was just something that I did for myself, and I never expected people to want to buy them, and I I wasn't you know planning a for that to be a thing at all. So I just started exploring. At first it was so fun just to make a tool that I could weave with. And 
after a while I started thinking, what if it looked like a person? What if it looked like me, you know? And I made a, a, a woman with bangs like I have and a short bob. And uh, it was just so, so fun to weave with that one because it's like playing with a doll, you know? And I was never one to play with dolls a lot when I was a kid, but with these heddles, I can just sit and, you know, <laughs> they're just so whimsical and fun. So I was really, you know, infatuated by that idea. And the freedom that I felt from not having any kind of customer view on it, I, I didn't I didn't think of the headers from any kind of perspective that this was made to appeal to anyone else. Right. Uh, it's something that I brought with me throughout all of these three years that I've been carving headers <laughs> now, um, <laughs> this long experience. No, but I, I stick with that. I make what I want to make and I don't take any orders, mm -hmm. which leaves me free to create anything I want. So if I were taking orders and one evening I get the idea that what if I could make a heddle that looks like it has a goat on it? If I had orders stacked in my head, I would be like, yeah, fun idea, but I have to finish those eight pomegranates first. Right. Um, now I don't have that pressure on me. So I can just, you know, instead of brushing my teeth, go and make the goat heddle, laugh about it, just like, ha, this was fun. I'm going to make more or try it. It didn't work out, but it makes the process very easy to handle for me. And it turns out that people do find them tremendously appealing and they sell right out. <laughs> yeah, I was so, I mean, it's still really wild for me because I always tried to sell my textile crafts as a textile mm -hmm. person. And, and I had to give that up because I was just ending up with discussing money with people mm -hmm. and trying to convince people that my craft was worth anything. And it just mm -hmm. made me sad. You know, that's not how I want to spend my days. Sure, that, that's, not, that's not what I want to be doing. So I mm -hmm. kind of gave that up. And I thought, okay, the way that I can earn money from crafts is from selling books, like describe to people how they can do it themselves and also to teach classes. So I was so surprised when people started asking me about the heddles, like, hey, can we buy them? Can we buy them? Can we buy them? I was like, uh, what? No, I know you. You don't want to buy them. As soon as I start telling you the prices, you're not going to want to buy them. But people kept asking me. And then I said, okay, well, I did. Like, I put up seven heddles for sale on Instagram. And they sold up within a day. And no one was asking. No one was haggling, you know. And I called my mom and like, Mama, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Mom, guess what happened? Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Now, and you mentioned writing books, and this is your third book. Uh, you have a book, Mend and Patch, and you yes. have a book on indigo dyeing. Mm -hmm. Those are sort of three different areas of crafting. Do you think of yourself as having one primary craft? No, no, I don't. And I think that those three books reflect very well how my life works. I kind of tend to hyper-focus or like fall deeply in love with different crafts at different times. So there was a time when I, uh, I was studying as a menswear tailor apprentice as I was doing an apprenticeship. And that was very strict and very, um, it was a very strict uh, life I was living. Uh, and I started dying with indigo in, in the evenings with a friend. And that was just so, you know, invigorating and liberating because we, get, we were just experimenting and trying stuff out. 
and with no pressure that I was supposed to be, become anything. So I would do my tailor training, but I had like indigo dyed textiles hanging in front of me on my lampshade that was looking at sewing, but looking at them, like thinking of different recipes and what if we could do this and that. Uh, and that led us to writing a book about it. And when, when that was done, we had bought the store that he had been working in and we had a, it was a denim store. So we had a denim repair shop there and people would ask, how do you repair jeans? And that led me to like writing the book about that. It's so interesting to think about repairing jeans because in some ways jeans are the perfect item to repair. They're meant to be hard wearing, mm. but I'm finding more and more that when there's other things in them, you know, they're a little stretchy or they have something else. It makes them a lot harder for me to repair because I can't get the texture right or they they've gotten to be, you know, not very strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, the, the stretchy jeans are definitely much harder to mend than the non-stretchy ones. I tend to wear them out in places that they would be hard to mend, but my husband, you know, rips out his belt loops. And so I'm not a very yeah. elegant repairer, but it's sort of a game to see how long can I keep them going. Yeah, I mean, I, I like to say like a good repair is a repair that does its job, mm-hmm. you know, that does what you expect it to do. So if you expect your belt, the repaired belt loops, if you expect them to be able to hold a belt and that's what they do, then that's a great repair. Uh, And if you expect it to be like a super elegant, invisible mend uh, and it isn't, well, Mm -hmm. then that's not the repair that you expected. And then you could say that it's a bad repair. I mean, Mm -hmm. but I think it's, I think mending is a lot about expectations really and just like doing the effort that you need to do to get what you expect. I think that mending has gone through so many different trends. It used to be that mending was something everybody did. And then it sort of seemed like was out of fashion. And now people want, to some extent, visible mending. It's a creative expression. Mm. So all kinds of different ways that you can, you know, make a textile last a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. You know, just kind of going back to the carving, because I noticed that you have woodworking tools in the in the background while we're speaking. And I think most people don't usually think of a hatchet as being a textile tool. You mean an axe? Uh, yes, an axe. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, a textile tool? No. Well, it's, it's for working with the woods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But making that part of the whole process, the same way that if you were growing flax, you would be, agriculture would be part of your textile process. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean. Mm-hmm. For sure. I mean, I always want to go back to the source. You know, it makes mm-hmm. me so happy if I can make my own tools. It makes me super happy if I know where the trees grew for mm-hmm. my tools, uh, if I don't have to buy the wood anywhere. And I, I really can't explain why it's so satisfying for me, but it is. You know, I love spinning yarn uh, from sheep that I knew or mm-hmm. I've seen and then weaving cloth from it. And that's just so laborious. It takes so much time, but it just makes me really, really satisfied and happy. So I love doing it. But I couldn't really, you know, um, I couldn't really explain scientifically why, because mm-hmm. it's not really important for my survival. You know, it just keeps my soul alive. Between your aesthetic, but also I think that the connection to the materials, I think of that as being kind of a very Scandinavian thing. And people might not realize that you're speaking to me from your home in Sweden. Hmm. Do you feel like you have a, a kind of a connection to 
the Swedish textile tradition? Yeah, yeah, I do. I think I feel very connected to like the, I, I feel very connected to the Swedish culture in general. I grew up in a, uh, on the family farm I spoke about earlier. So I grew up in the countryside walking around with my grandfather and he would talk about, you know, in the Iron Age, there would have been water here because, you know, Sweden was covered by ice. So we're still, and the ice was pressing us down in the Ice Age. Mm-hmm. So we're still kind of rising. We had the land rising. So he would point out like there used to be water here. Those fields would be water. And can you see in the hill up there, there's an old settlement there from the Iron Age. You know, just like rooting me into the landscape here very thoroughly and I'd spend my afternoons in the forest just you know come home from the school bus dump my bag in the in the hallway of the house and just go out into the woods for a couple of hours so I feel really like deeply rooted here but also um, my maternal grandmother was as I mentioned a textile crafter and that has transferred over to my mother and to me so I feel like I grew up with a lot of traditional textile items, but also traditions just around me, you know, as a natural part of life. And you mentioned that your grandfather carved heddles. Was he also a weaver? No, they had this very strict partition between them. Like my grandfather did the hard crafts, like the bone <laughs> and the wood. Uh, and my grandmother did anything textile, but she did not work in the, in the hard materials, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. But what that kind of points out to me is that, you know, I think of the rigid huddle as being a more recent, I guess, trend in the weaving world. But, you know, these sort of carved huddles or rigid huddles have been around for quite a while. I noticed that you, um, on a recent trip to the U.S., went to the Vesterheim and we spoke with Lauren Gilbertson a while mm. ago. But there are, you know, the traditional Norwegian huddles laid out there for mm-hmm. me to look at. Hmm. So did you sort of start off as a band weaver? Was band weaving always part of your practice or was that something that you got into more recently? Well, I learned I learned weaving bands when I was a kid from my I don't really remember learning Mm -hmm. it. I just kind of soaked it up, I guess, or my mom must have shown me how uh, Mm -hmm. at some point. But I didn't really realize that the rigid heddle looms were a thing before I started working with the Simple Weave book because it's it's not a big thing here in Sweden. I think over in the U.S., if you talk about a rigid heddle, you're going to think about the rigid heddle looms, which was the ones that you described. But mm-hmm. I've never seen one here in Sweden uh, until recently. So that's not really been a big thing here. But of course, they are super convenient. Mm-hmm. But here, like the rigid heddles, they have they have traditionally been used for band weaving, and they've been around since since I think the earliest finding in Sweden is from the twelve hundreds. Wow. Uh, yeah, so twelve hundred AD, and they're they're very small. They've not been used for making cloth at all. Mm-hmm. I think that one has like spots for maybe ten threads or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I I think that band weaving, at least in the U.S., people tend to think I'm going to weave a band and then I need to find something to do with it. But the pleasure, the joy is mostly in the making of the band. Oh, for me, it is. You know, I this this is kind of snarky, but I always think and sometimes I say when people ask me, like, what 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 would you use a band for? 
uh, like my initial response is if you're asking me that question, you're in the wrong place. Like, if this does not appeal to you and spark your imagination, why are you even talking to me? Mm -hmm. uh, because I don't, I'm not here to convince anyone. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, with all my crafts, I'm not here to convince anyone that mending is great. You know, I'm not here to convince anyone that weaving is fun. If you don't think weaving is fun, go take a walk. You know, <laughs> go do something else. I don't, yeah. I don't want to spend my time doing the missionary mm -hmm. thing. Of course, I can I can give you some examples on what to weave mm -hmm. with the bands if, if that's what you want. Well, I was just thinking that, you know, before we had, for example, zippers, buttons or Velcro, bands were everything. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially before we had stainless steel, because before mm -hmm. that, the buttons would have been made. Uh, if they were made from metal, they would rust when you wash the garments. And when you don't wash the garments very often, you need to soak them before. And you know what happens with? steel that's not stainless if you start soaking it it's going to start rusting and then it's going to leave stains on your garments so it would be very inconvenient to have buttons made from like regular steel or so so bands have been used a lot in like the pre-industrial clothing tradition you know it's funny you raise a really good point you know certainly i think all of our listeners all of our readers are interested in textile crafts for the richness and pleasure of the doing, as you say. And yet we mm. do sort of have a, a feeling that it has to be useful, that it has to be justified. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. And, and at some point, I mean, I feel like that with indigo now, mm -hmm. because I've spent many years exploring it just for the fun of it. And I feel like I've had my fill of it. So now it's like, if I'm going to dive with indigo, I do it because I need to dye something with indigo. You know, I don't do it for the fun of it because I've done it for the fun of it so many times. So I feel like I've come to that point where I'm, it's, it's more like uh, not a chore, but it's like cooking. I love cooking, but I don't do it if I'm not going to eat. You know? <laughs> yeah. I don't do it just because it's so fun and then just keep the food and look at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I noticed that you're, when you make heddles, you, you're still drawn to the color blue. Yeah. You know, I used to be a goth kid. So I used to, used to only wear black and everything was only black. And it wasn't until I was like 24. Uh, I was studying at Satellanton in, uh, in Dalarna in Sweden. Uh, mm -hmm. I was studying folk costume sewing. And one day I was like, yellow is a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I started just Googling yellow. And I started loving yellow. And it was like the first color that appealed to me. And then I went into blue and like blue is the color that I can love, you know. But just working that mono, I, I feel I kind of still have that monochrome uh, mind. Mm -hmm. Like I, I don't feel, feel very talented in combining colors with each other. Mm. I don't feel like I'm, uh, like that is not my talent. It doesn't come easy for me. I, it's usually like a, a big struggle um, to to find something to go with the blue. <laughs> um, but you know, indigo indigo goes a long way because mm -hmm. there are so many hues and tones, and it's also so satisfying to look at. So if I'm to choose a color, it usually comes out blue. 
Well, there's a trend of people, you know, instead of having to feel like you need a whole bunch of different outfits, there are people who decide I'm going to have a uniform and they wear the same thing and that just becomes their look. So it's, I figured that blue is sort of your your signature color in a way. It is, it is. But that also comes with, I I had a denim store for four years, so I have a lot of jeans Mm -hmm. and a lot of other like denim or indigo related garments because that's what we sold and I don't really like to go shopping so you know (laughs) shopping in your own store is super convenient because you don't have to you know you don't have to go searching for stuff in other stores that's Um, true so so that came kind of natural for me uh I'm actually really drawn to reddish colors from ranging from like a camel brown to like a deep burgundy red is really drawing me in but I'm so picky at this point with my clothes, which is weird because you can see me sitting here in like my old worn Icelandic sweater that I wear every day <laughs> and it's worn to shreds. But I'm, I'm really like, I'm really hesitant to bring in a new garment into my wardrobe because I'm very aware of what garment production has a huge impact on uh, our environment and also very often the people who make them. So I'm really restrictive with that, which it means that I usually end up thinking, mm, I'm going to sew that instead. Or like, if I want a sweater, <laughs> I end up thinking, okay, so I need to spend the yarn for that and then I need to knit it. And <laughs> so, so it happens very rarely. And that, that's why my wardrobe is still blue. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I had the same thing. I could make that. And so often it will fall down the list and I won't get around to making it. And then I just don't have a sweater. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. So you studied as a tailor. You were did, a yeah. folk costume and then apprenticing to be a men's tailor. What was yeah. it about menswear that appealed to you? Well, the thing is that I studied folk costume sewing Mm-hmm. And then I wanted to get a job at the tailoring department at mm-hmm. Skansen, which is Swedish oldest opera museum, and mm-hmm. where people, the people who worked there, uh, not all of them, but some of them wear folk costumes from different regions of Sweden. So they have like a department that makes folk costumes. And I pranced in there one day and was like, so what should a girl do to get a job here? Does my degree from Sattaglanta matter to you? And they were like, no. <laughs> no, you need to be, you need to have an apprentice, you know, you need to, no, you need to be like a journeyman tailor. Uh, and I said, well, okay. And then I, I found myself at the Royal Swedish Opera. I was working there like behind the scenes as a garment technician, it's called. I was basically keeping track of everyone's socks and you know, <laughs> making sure that their corsets were laced before they went out on stage. Mm-hmm. And then I went into their costume department and I said, so what should a girl do to get a job here then? Does it matter that I've been sewing since I was 14? They were like, no, no, you need to have the journeyman certificate and at that point I just started looking up what's okay so where can I get this and so there are two ways to do it in Sweden you can either either attend a school and and go in a class with 30 other people or you can apply to be an apprentice at a tailoring shop so that's what I did so I sewed jackets like menswear jackets for two years there and I haven't sewn a jacket since, but I got my <laughs> I got my papers. Um, I never got a job at the tailoring studios though, um, because when I was finished with the with the certificate, the tailoring education, I bought the denim store instead. So yeah. it sort of led you in other directions. It did, yeah, it did, and and I don't think it was 
it wasn't the menswear specifically that pulled me in. It was more the thing that what I realized I've been sewing since I was a kid. And I'd always thought that that was going to be my career. And I hit the point where the places I wanted to work, they all needed me to have this certain education. So just kind of went and got it. That's interesting that there's a certification in sewing. I don't think we have that here. I mean, I, I might be just that I haven't looked into it, but the idea that there's a journeyman certificate. I don't know if there's uh, in the US, there definitely is in England. Like on several row, people will be apprenticing and then getting some kind of degree and some kind of paper that means that they've done their, their years. Uh, uh, and some of them, some people who have trained there will be working in the US, but I don't know if you have a national organization that gives out those. So, you know, you have a background in sewing and we've talked about weaving, but, you know, speaking of being close to your materials, I do see your spinning and work that you're doing with your hand spun yarn. Yeah. So, so how did you learn to spin? That was my grandma. There's a picture of me and my brother standing in her kitchen and he's super chubby. I think I'm five and he's four mm -hmm. and we're both spinning this gnarly, lumpy yarn and we're super proud, you know, on our drop spindles. And it was just a matter of us being, you know, my parents would leave us with grandma for a weekend or, or for a week in the summer and, and she would just entertain us in the ways the best she could. You know, the things mm -hmm. that she loved, she shared with us. And uh, it could be crochet or it could be folding paper airplanes. <laughs> we just covered her house in paper airplanes one summer uh, or spinning. And you're currently weaving and knitting with your hand spun. Is that right? I don't knit a lot. I think like I imagine myself to knit sometimes and I do know how to, but I never really learned how to read a pattern. So if I knit, I just kind of make it up as I go or, yeah, <laughs> and then, then pull, it, pull it apart and then, you know, frog it and knit again. But I, I do enjoy uh, spinning and weaving with my handspun a lot. Yeah. There's something about the character of handspun, although I say that and I think I've only ever woven two or three things with my handspun. Mm. Do you use that on your, with your, with your bands or is it more for your wider cloth? I love, I love weaving bands with my hand spun because I spin and that, but that's the thing that I can't really go on my social media and be like, Hey, I recommend you do this. Start spinning at the age of five. <laughs> then get right then on that. <laughs> practice for 30 years. And now because I spin a really thin, uh, how should I say tightly spun yarn, a two ply. Uh, that I dye in different plant colors and weave with. And it, it looks like it's a thin linen yarn, uh, like structure-wise, but it just reflects the light in a totally different way. Like the wool catches the light in such a lovely way that can never be replicated by linen or cotton, you know, because they're totally different fibers. So I just really love that. And when I weave bands for myself, I usually will weave in hand-spun uh, yarn. But I also really love getting a whole fleece from a uh, sheep and then spinning it into yarn and then weaving a cloth of it and then I just stack it on the shelf you know <laughs> there's, there's never I've never really had the idea that oh this is going to become this garment but I'm still in that like love the love phase of that part of crafts you know I'm still in love with the idea of spinning yarn and then weaving with it so 
that's something I really love to do. And, and those projects can span over several years because I spin mostly with my hand spindle because it's more convenient for me. Like when I sit down to have breakfast, I spin for 30 minutes or something. And if I would sit down by the wheel, that would just be a much bigger project to do. And it wouldn't be like as incorporated in my everyday life as it is now. You know, we talked about being really rooted in traditional Swedish culture and, and sense of place. But when you're talking about spinning a very fine two-ply, dyeing it with natural plants, weaving it on a simple loom using a hand spindle, those things actually all remind me of the weavers in the Andes who are weaving oh, and- bands, but uh, you know, in some cases, wider fabric, but they're using a backstrap loom which I see in your book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these, these things are, are not specifically Swedish. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, that's like saying that uh, cooking is specifically Swedish. I mean, spinning mm-hmm. and weaving is it's such a basic skill that's spread all over the world. So that has nothing to do. I mean, well, it has a lot to do with my Swedish heritage, but that's definitely not something that I do that's like to feed my picture of myself as a Swede. Definitely not. It has nothing to do with that. It's more like it's just a very deep satisfaction. It has something to do with like I want to know that I can take care of myself, you know. And I also, I love, I'm a big history nerd. I'm a super (laughs) big history nerd. So I'll be sitting looking at scraps of fabric from like year 800 and be like, oh, wow, I wonder what that fabric feels like. And I could never know because I can't go to like the Viking ship museum in Oslo and touch it because that's forbidden. And <laughs> even if I could, they have been in the ground for so long. So, I mean, they're not representative for how they felt back then. The only way that I can find out what garments felt like, like in the history and prehistory is by, by making something similar myself and realizing that I'm probably not getting very close, but that's it just gives me huge satisfaction when I feel like, ah, oh, now I've woven this in this thread count that's similar to this scrap that I'm looking at. Maybe I'm getting close to the experience because I can't go back in time. I can't. And, and, and you know, I, I'm not saying like, I'm born in the wrong time. I'm, I'm, I'm only born in the right time. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to die from a toothache at age 15. Uh, but, but, um, but there's something that's very appealing with the history and the way that I try to get close to it is by creating uh, items that are as plausible as possible to have existed like, in, in the time period that I'm looking at at the moment. I guess when I talk about just regional roots, I'm thinking about, you know, for example, cardamom is something that's used very much in Scandinavia and also in India. So the way that something can have both uh, a universal relationship, but a very specific sense of place. That's what I, I guess I meant. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, you're right. So you've sort of written three books about these things that you've done, for example, a deep dive on, you said. So is creating a new book something that's sort of part of your process now? Or is it just sort of, I've done a bunch of work on this subject, and I think I'll document it now? Um, Well, now, so I sold the denim store that I had, I sold it uh, two years ago, to to the guy who I was running it with, we were in a relationship. And when we weren't anymore, it made sense not to be running Mm -hmm. a store together. And since then, I've started thinking of what am I going to do for a living now? 
and the head also going really well. I'm te- teaching a lot of classes, so I'm like making a living from that uh, and from writing my books. So uh, at first it was just like, oh, we're going to write a book, you know. And the second book just kind of, we like kind of did that as we were going. But um, the third book was more like, okay, so now I don't have a full-time job anymore. What am I going to do? And I also had a lot of people asking me about uh, how to weave on a rigid heddle, how to weave bands, what yarn to use, how to make them. So I just figured like, okay, so I'll write a book about that. I'm, I'm, I'm planning for more of a life where I write books uh, as an income stream, you know, um, maybe writing books together with other people. I'm looking at writing a book, which I can't talk about a lot, but that won't actually be focusing on my craft. I'm more of, I'll have more of a journalist's role in that. Uh, writing a book for a person who is not fluent in Swedish. Uh, So he has a really strong craft and a lot to say, but he doesn't have the language really. So I can team up with him and be like the author of that. And that's really, it's really interesting just to see where life takes me at this point, because I could never have known, I, I could never have imagined that I would be making a living from my heddles when I started out. You know, I could never have fathomed that. So uh, when I decided to to go go with it and see where it took me, I just had to let go of some control and let go because I'm a planner. You know, I'm I'm really like I want to know what's going to happen and I want to have a plan B. I want to have a plan C. You know, I'm, like, <laughs> I'm really I'm really not like a go with a flow person. So, but now I I have to kind of give myself that chance to see where it leads me. So. It's interesting that you say that you'd like to have a plan B and a plan C. And yet you also said that you wanted to have freedom to explore creatively. And I think that that's sort of a a line that it sounds like you're walking between having an artist's ability to embrace a new direction and a working craftsman's need to, you know, plan for sustaining a living. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's like I love uh, disclosure. I love talking about money. I'm not like... (laughs) really. Yeah, I'm not like, oh, you don't talk about that. I love talking about money. Mm-hmm. And um, what I what I what was really important to me is to say that I'm able to live this lifestyle because I sold a denim store. I had a denim store and I sold half of it, which meant that I had a big buffer. Uh, or is that a word in English? Yes, absolutely. I, had a, I have a big plan B. And so when I sold the store, I said to myself, I don't need to have a job for a year. And in a year's time, I need to start looking for a job. So I set myself an amount of money that would last me for a year. And the money, I haven't touched it yet, actually. In two years time, I haven't had to touch it because I started selling headers immediately. But if I didn't have that plan B, then... I would never, ever have taken the leap that I did because I've always been the one who is like, I don't think I've ever been out of money in my bank account because I've always been like, I save, I save. I, I would never, you know, buy myself something that I wanted if I didn't know that I'm going to be able to save money in the end of the month. So that's really important to me. And it can seem like I'm just floating around here in my studio carving, but of course, what you don't see is those four years of running the denim store, working way much more than full time with that and then selling that company to my ex and then having that security, which is just like, OK, so if this collapses, I have a plan B. If plan B collapses, I have a plan C. 
And if I didn't have those, I would be doing anything else right now. You know, I would be working, I would be cleaning hotel rooms for sure, just because I hate the feeling that I might not be able to sustain myself. That's like the scariest thing for me. I think that's the best advertisement I've ever heard for being a saver is the the freedom (laughs) that it gives you. I had a friend once who said that money had a great deal of energy and that sometimes if you if you released it, it would it would lead to good things. But you wanted to have that sort of energy to be able to work with. Well, well, it's true. I had a teacher who said uh, she she gave a friend of mine the advice that live as if you have money and you will get money. And that is true as well. I mean, if I weren't free to be creative because I have that security. Now, I want to I wanna say again, I haven't had to touch that money from the business that I sold because I started selling heddles. I started giving classes as soon as I, uh, or almost as soon as I sold the store. But if I didn't know that I was free, I wouldn't be making heddles. You know, if I needed to make a heddle to pay my next bill, I would just freeze up. Uh, yeah, I definitely agree with that as well. You know, just, just having that security is really important. I think, though, that it does point out that you can have different relationships with art and craft, because in my world, craft is something that you tend to spend money on instead of deriving money from. I mean, certainly our teachers and authors, that's their living. But for a lot of us who, you know, immerse ourselves in making things by hand, that's what we work to be able to do. Well, and I always, you know, I moved away from home when I was 16 and I had my own budget then. And my budget was, you know, the translation Krona to dollar isn't perfect, but I had about $100 uh, per month to go around when my rent was paid. So growing up in that situation has made me really scrappy. Uh, and I really hesitate to buy stuff for my crafts. And you'll see that in my books as well. It's very rarely like for the weaving book, it's like you can you can go and buy wood, but this is how you find it for free. You know, you would need a knife, but you don't need a big arsenal of different specific tools. You don't need like a, a wood carving studio. You can do this by your kitchen table because that's how I craft. And that's kind of how I'm comfortable crafting. Even if now I can buy super expensive cashmere yarn if I want to, but I don't want to because that just feels weird to me. I want to spin the softest lamb's wool instead. And I will pay for a lamb's wool fleece for sure. But yeah, there's still that kind of feeling that I don't want to. I'm assuming that the people who are taking your classes are doing it because they're interested in it as opposed to, you know, that, that it's more of enrichment than a profession. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's very right. And It's something that I struggle with a lot because me as a person, privately, I would love to see people coming to my classes and being really attentive, bringing their pen and paper, taking notes, really listening and taking me seriously. But what, like 95% of my students, they're there for the experience. They're there to have a great weekend with their friend and do some crafts, you know, and I just have to like, because they're the customers. They are the customers and I sell the service and I have to like align myself with what will make them happy. So I started, I started just recently thinking in my classes because I teach a lot, a class where they get to carve a heddle in the first day and they get to weave bands on on the second day and carving a heddle in one day, that can be tight for a beginner, but I've started 
thinking now that, you know, it doesn't matter if they don't finish their huddle as long as they have a nice day. And someone will be really driven and finish their huddle and they, they will be like the kind of student who wants to make a huddle. And then they do. But most of the group will be there just like, oh, it's so fun to try a new thing. And I have to kind of sit with that and like, this is what they want and this is what makes them happy. Because at the end of the day, I want them to have a good weekend. I want them to leave and be content. And if they're content with like being visitors in my craft, then that's what that's what they want and that, that's what they should get. But initially my class is made for people who really want to learn like as much as they can in two days. Mm-hmm. That's how I built the class. Yeah. I definitely think that there are teachers who specialize in each one and I'm going to use the word dilettante, which sometimes has a negative connotation, but doesn't necessarily need to. But today's sampler might be somebody yeah. who goes home and, and does a lot of research themselves. So, Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Or like they take a class and then they go home and they start carving something else. You know, I didn't, the year that I started carving heddles, I thought I wanted to carve spoons. So I put up a carving knife, the, the kind of bent hook knife on my wish list. And I got them for Christmas, but I got a left-handed spoon knife. So I never, I never tried it out because um, if you're a righty and you use a left-handed spoon knife, there's a high risk of cutting yourself. And I didn't yes. really know how to use it uh, as well. So I just didn't try it. And I ended up making heddles instead, which uh, lucky coincidence. <laughs> so there's always that you, you never know what you start up in someone. Mm-hmm. But uh, as a professional crafter, I really feel like I crave to meet other professional crafters and when I do I'm like oh you know (laughs) there's so much uh, that I want to talk about and compare stuff but but most of the people that I meet in my classes are the the beginner carvers the people who just want to experience and that's uh, that has to be fine that has to be fine or it needs to say or I need to be very specific like this is a class for if you want to be a professional headlock carver, I don't really, I don't really want to. I mean, I teach the class and mm. I see other people selling heddles, but I don't really want to groom people into being my competition either. Yes. So, so, you know, <laughs> I, I don't really want to open up a program where it's like, come and live with me for six months and learn everything that I do. Um, yeah. And then, then put me out of my business. You know? mm-hmm. That's not what I'm looking for. I mean, I want to share my stuff, but I'm still happy that I can, I can do what I do and make it a living from it. Yeah. Do you pretty much teach only in person? Can you teach carving online? I've been thinking of making an online class for a long time and I want to do it. It's just that I'm such an idiot when it comes to like computer stuff. It's such a such a like classic crafter thing. You're like super competent in real life and then as soon as somebody puts you in front of a computer, you're like, huh? Where does this go? What is I clicked something, you know? Um, but I really want to put up a, an online carving class on my website. And I keep saying I'm going to do it, but we'll see. I, I've, I've, recently, I've been doing some zooms with like a dual camera, and that made me that made me feel a lot like, oh, this could this this knowledge could translate over to me doing like recording some digital files here and just like putting them together. So I'm kind of like I'm edging up to it, and it's probably hopefully going to happen sometime. <laughs> 
Yeah. Okay, that would be great because I, I have people like in Australia saying like, oh, I wish I could take your class. Can you come to Brisbane? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, it's going to be, uh, yeah, if you pay me, I'll come. And they're like, oh, the, those flight tickets, they're, they're expensive. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. I know. So, I mean, there are just places I'm never going to be able to go to and teach. But, uh, or you mean, never say never. That would be really neat to be able to offer. Right. So for now, if people want to learn carving from you or, or weaving or any of your offerings in person, they would either have to bring you over or, or come to visit you in Sweden, which sounds like a pretty marvelous way of learning. Yeah. Or they can pick up one of your books. Exactly. Exactly. I'm actually teaching in London this spring and I sell the tickets on my website, hint, mm -hmm. hint. Um, <laughs> but I, I've sold one ticket so far and it was to, to an American woman. So mm -hmm. I have to like email her and like, hey, are you aware that this is London, England? Uh, but she probably is. And like she's planning a trip over, which is crazy for me. I mean, I, that's so flattering to to imagine that somebody would do that. But um, And when is it? It's in May. Oh, wonderful. I uh, can't really remember the dates. I think it's in the middle of May. Hmm. But yeah. we will have uh, a link to your website on our show notes if people want to go and explore it. That's great. Kirsten, thank you so much for talking about your new book, Simple Weave, and all about your whole textile process. Thanks so much. Thank you, Anne. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Trainway Silks for sponsoring this episode. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.